you have not injured me at all. And you know how through the infirmity of your flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. My temptation which was in my flesh you despised not, nor rejected. You received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spake of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. It's a good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, not only when I am present with you. My little children, of whom I travel in birth again, until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? It is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a bondmaid, and the other was by a free woman. And he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Welcome to the Unchanging Word Bible Study. Our teacher, Dr. John G. Mitchell, was faithful in teaching the Word of God for more than 60 years throughout the Northwest. Our name, the Unchanging Word, reflects the fact that the eternal Word of God is never changed and never will. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Life begins at Calvary, there my Savior died. He took my place and by His grace came with me to abide. All I need for living is mine by just believing. Life begins at Calvary, life that never ends. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Dr. Mitchell continues our study in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 with two sons. And here is Dr. Mitchell. Thank you. Good day, friends. Again, we rejoice in the privilege that is ours of coming to you. And I'm sure you know by now that it's a real joy for me to talk to you about the things of Christ and the marvelous sufficiency of the work he has accomplished for us at the cross. And we've been studying the book of Galatians, and I do know that uh, many of you have been blessed, and some have come into a place of real rejoicing in the Savior. And I trust that as we continue in our studies of this book of Galatians, the Lord will make very precious to you and to me wonders of his blessed son who did a perfect work for men and women at Calvary. And he's guaranteed that work by his resurrection. Now we're in the fifth chapter, pardon me, the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians. And we've been dealing with verse 8 down through verse 19. 
We've been dealing here with the appeal of the Apostle Paul uh, to these Galatian Christians who have changed. He hasn't changed, but they have changed. And he's amazed at them because having come into a new relationship with Christ and having been freed from bondage and found Christ sufficient, why go back to the weak and beggarly elements, which are helpless to justify? To turn from Judaism and then come to Christ and accept the Savior and go back to Judaism, which we had in chapter 2 with the Apostle Peter, was mean, it meant not to walk uprightly according to the gospel. But now when you come to this chapter, he's talking with these Gentiles who had turned from paganism, who had come to know the Savior, and they had now turned from Christ to Judaism, to legality, to keeping the law, to perfect their salvation. And the result was that they had been deluded. They'd been bewitched. And the great desire of Paul was that they might know something of the joy and the blessing of a life in Christ. I am well aware of this fact, that it's very difficult for the human heart to turn from works and just really dare believe God, that the work of Christ is absolutely, completely sufficient for us for time and for eternity. We're so constituted that we want to bring our own works in and add them to the work of Christ. As we had in the first chapter of Galatians, this, of course, ruins the gospel. Now they have turned from Christ and his sufficiency, and they're following shadows, and they're keeping days and new moons and Sabbath days and what have you. And it's a terrible thing, I believe, for a person who has experienced the sufficiency of Christ to go back to bondage and shadows. And then in verses 13 to 15, uh, Paul brings up the fact, when did they have joy? When did they have blessing? Why, of course, when they were believing in the sufficiency of Christ, when they were satisfied with Christ, when they had accepted the grace of Christ. And they were so blessed that they even received Paul as an angel from heaven. When did they lose their blessing? When they put themselves back under the law. When Paul came the first time to them, they were greatly blessed of God. When he came the second time, they were cold and indifferent. In fact, they treated him as an enemy. Legalism robs people of blessing, of joy, of fellowship. Not only so, but you'll notice that these Judaizers had wanted them to be exclusive of Paul and of grace. You take verse 17. They zealously affect you, but not well. They would exclude you that ye might affect them. And it's good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. In other words, these Judaizers wanted to be the center of attraction. And Paul to them had become their enemy. And yet Paul insists upon the fact that he was still preaching the gospel, which had liberated and blessed them. And I want to say how true this picture is today. I can think of Christians, men and women who have come to know the Savior, and they were just reveling in the person of Christ. They were praising the Lord for the salvation that was theirs in Christ. They were filled with joy and with peace and with blessing, and everybody knew it. 
And then some Christians came along and put them under the laws of rule of life. They lost their joy, they lost their peace, because if you're honest, you must confess that you don't keep the law. Even though you shout about keeping the law, you don't keep it. And remember, cursed is everyone who continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So this is a, a thing that I want to get to your hearts. You cannot mix law and grace. They just don't mix. We had that in the book of Romans, you remember, chapter 11. If it's of grace, then it's no more of works. If it's of works, it's no more of grace. You just don't mix them. Now, there's such a thing as the works of faith, of which James speaks in chapter 2 of his epistle. These were not works of the law that James was talking about, talking about the works of faith, evident by what we see with Abraham offering up his son Isaac. And now when you come to the 19th verse, we see just how important this was to the Apostle Paul, and how it grieved his heart that these people had turned from the sufficiency of Christ. And I must again declare to you, legalism will rob you of joy, of blessing, of fellowship, of peace. In fact, it makes you hypercritical of somebody else who's not walking the way you think they ought to walk. It just ruins your whole Christian testimony. Now look at verse 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. This man, Paul, was willing to travail in birth again that they might again have Christ as the one who was the center of their faith, the object of their affection and their devotion. Not Christ plus the law, but Christ himself. My, what a yearning that Christ might be built up formed in them. Their growth in Christ had been stopped. And Paul was willing to become uh, a channel whereby he might travel in birth for them. I think this is what Paul had in mind, for example, in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, where Paul says, I have continual sorrow and unceasing pain in my heart. I could verily wish myself a curse from Christ for my brethren's sake. You have it in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, where Epiphras, this man who had brought the gospel to the people at Colossae, and the Lord had used him, and people had been saved, and a church had been started, and yet they were being swept away from the sufficiency in Christ and were occupied with the philosophies of men, with legalism, uh, false mysticism, and so on in that second chapter. And in that fourth chapter, verse 12, where you have this man agonizing in prayer that they might stand complete in the will of God. This is the man who was faithful on his feet in testifying to them and now is faithful on his knees in pleading with God for them. You know, it's one thing to bring a person to Christ. It's another thing to see them grow in the grace of God to grow in the knowledge of God, to know something of the purpose and will of God, not only for the nations and for Israel and for the church, but for they themselves. And too many Christians, too many people uh, have, have really accepted the Lord Jesus as their Savior and have not, gone on with, have not gone on with God. They have not grown. They haven't been fed. 
and they become occupied with religious things instead of Christ. And I, I say it very bluntly, my friend, when Christ ceases to be the center of your affection, when he ceases to be the all-sufficient Savior for you, then you lose your joy. You come under bondage and shadows. Then you lose fellowship with other believers. You become hypocritical. And I say again, this burdened the very heart of Paul. I'm willing to, to travel in birth again. Christ be formed, built up in you. And this broke the heart of Paul when he saw these Galatian Christians who had been so filled with joy and blessing and fellowship. Christ had been evidently set forth, crucified among them, praising the Lord for the grace of Christ and for the sufficiency in Christ. Now, now, they'd come under bondage. Am I talking to you this morning? Have you lost your joy and your blessing in fellowship with other Christians? I would suggest that you come into the presence of the Lord and, and just confess your condition before him and be cleansed and forgiven and enjoy Christ. He's an all-sufficient Savior. My friend, you did nothing to be saved except accept the Savior. He was sufficient to save you. Now then, he is sufficient to keep you. Christ didn't say, I'll save you from sin and forgive you and cleanse you. Now it's up to you to do the rest. You don't find out in the Scripture. He's an all-sufficient Savior. Why don't you revel in him? Not revel in something that you do, but revel in him. He's a real Savior. He's a wonderful Lord. And my friend, it's as you're occupied with him that your joy will be full and you'll enjoy that peace which passeth all understanding. My, what a Savior he is. What a Lord he is. And to me, it's inconceivable. And yes, it's true that so many professing Christians know nothing of their joy and freedom in the Savior. This is because there has come into the hearts and minds of people a misconception of the grace of God. In fact, I have been informed myself that if I preach the grace of God, then I am preaching license. Now, may I, I, may I correct that statement when I tell you that when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, He is an all-ever-blessed, sufficient Savior. And that to be saved, we have to accept Jesus Christ as our own personal Savior. This is a personal relationship. And after we become a Christian, he is the one who must keep us 100%. You can't keep yourself. And the danger is for us to accept Christ as Savior and then trust ourselves to keep our salvation. And as I said in our past lesson, this robs you of peace, of joy, of blessing, especially if you're honest. You must confess with me, if you're honest, that you don't, that you fail God and that if you put yourself under the law as a rule of life, you break that law. And if you break that law, you come under the curse of God. Cursed is everyone who continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You see, there's no out at all. Either Christ is an all-sufficient Savior for time and eternity, or he is no Savior at all. And to turn from Christ 
in His sufficiency and His care for us and begin to trust ourselves in what we do and what we hope to do or what we try to do, we ruin the gospel of the grace of God. And we continue now in chapter 4 of Paul's epistle to the Galatian church. My little children of whom I travel in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, but I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? What does the law do? The law thunders. You go back to the 19th and 20th chapters of the book of Exodus when God gave the law, the people were scared stiff. Even Moses was full of fear. There was no joy when the law was given to Israel. They didn't stand up and praise the Lord for receiving the law. When the law was given, there was thunders and lightnings and, they was an, and the earth shook and they were scared stiff. The law didn't bring liberty. The law didn't bring joy. The law brought condemnation. As we were saying in one of these preceding lessons, the law is a ministration of death. The law makes sin exceeding sinful. Now in verses 21 to 31, having discussed in the preceding part of the chapter the sufficiency of Christ and what they had done in turning from him, he gave them an illustration which contains an allegory. Now, an allegory is given for us to, to teach some spiritual truth. Our Lord was very, uh, was very fond of doing this. Uh, he would take a parable, for example, take something of life, and from it illustrate some spiritual truth. Now, the Apostle Paul does that here in verses 21 down to the end of the chapter. And he talks about the fact of Abraham having two sons. You remember the, if I may allow to read you part of this, I'll not take the time to take, to read all of it. It is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a bondmaid, and his name was Ishmael. And the other was by a free woman, and that was Isaac through Sarah. And he who was of the bondwoman, was born after the flesh. That story is found in Exodus chapter 16. But he of the free woman was by promise. And when Abraham was a hundred years of age and Sarah was 90 years of age, Isaac was born. It was a supernatural thing. God quickened the bodies of Abraham and Sarah at 90 and a hundred years of age in order that the child of promise, Isaac, might be born. Now this, in verse 24, I read, these things are an allegory. These are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is Hagar, that is, the giving of the law. And this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. They were under the law, plus all the uh, traditions they had added to the law, and they were in great bondage. Now, in verse 26, we have the second one. Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. You go on down to verse 28 and 29. 
But we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We don't belong to bondage. Now, in a nutshell, here you have the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. You remember these stories are found, or this history is found in the book of Genesis, starting in at chapter 16. And you follow it through, through 19, through 20. You find here where uh, God had promised to Abraham a son. In chapter 15, his seed would be like the sand, would be like the stars of heaven for multitude. In chapter 13, they would be like the sand for the seashore by multitude. No children. So Sarah said to Abraham one day, you take Hagar and get me a son through the bondwoman. This was quite a common thing, by the way, in those days. So the result was that Ishmael was born. And for 13 years, you've got silence between chapters uh, 16 and 17 of Genesis when Abraham was occupied with Ishmael, the fruit of the flesh, and he, for some reason or other, you have no revelation of God. There's silence for 13 years. Then coming into chapter 17, when Abraham is 99 years of age, God said to him, Abram, I'm going to give you a boy. And that boy is going to be from Sarah. I'm not going to take all the detail of it. The result was that Sarah had Isaac. Now, after Isaac was born and the boy began to grow up, you've got a family problem. You've got a family row indeed. You've got Sarah and Hagar on one side and Ishmael and Isaac on the other. And now poor old Abraham is in a box. He loved Ishmael, but he was a child of the flesh, just like we do. We like the things of the flesh. But God said to Abraham, I want you to cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman will not be heir with the son of the free woman. And Paul here uses this as an illustration of the fact that we who are saved by Jesus Christ, by simple, wonderful, sovereign grace, we are looked upon as the child of the free woman, children of promise, children of faith. And those who are in legalism are following Ishmael, the child of the bondwoman, which is Mount Sinai but there's no joy, no blessing. You can't mix them. This is what Paul is declaring. He said, brethren, the book says, cast out the bondwoman and her son. The son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but children of the free woman. He's pleading here that these Christians, these Galatian Christians, might turn back from the bondage of the law, which, which can only curse, which can only condemn, never gives life, never blesses, never strengthens you. It demands perfection. If you don't, if you're not perfect and keep the whole law continually, 
every moment of the day, then you come under its curse. We are now children of the free woman. We belong to an all-sufficient, ever-blessed Savior. And I would plead, just as Paul pled for the Galatian Christians, I would plead with you Christians today here in this part of God's vineyard to turn to Christ, and He is the one who can satisfy you not only to be saved, but every day of the week, every hour of the day, Christ is sufficient for your need. Paul here is pleading again for the sufficiency of our precious Savior. Please do not turn from Christ to Moses, from grace to law. If I were teaching the book of Hebrews in chapter 7, I'd go more into that. Because if we change the priesthood, we must change the covenant. And if you change from Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, to Christ, then you must change from law to grace. You can't mix them. The Levitical priesthood and the law of Moses are inseparable. And if you turn to Christ, then you must be under the grace of God. And this is the place of joy and of blessing and of usefulness. And that's, of course, where we want to be. Why don't you read your Bible and get occupied with the person of Christ? And remember, he is absolutely sufficient for you, child of God, not only to save you, but also to keep you. Why don't you revel in him? Thank you for listening to the Unchanging Word Bible Study today. And so until next time, this is the Unchanging Word Bible Broadcast. Life begins at Calvary.